0: Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Everything the founding fathers thought in the 1780s when they wrote that constitution, they learned themselves in the 1790s was wrong. The judiciary in a democracy. All presidents from the beginning have always taken, you know, politics and the likely views of the judges into account before putting them on the bench.
1: What is the role of an unelected judiciary in a democracy? When they wrote the constitution, no one
0: was yet thinking about the judiciary as an important interpreter of the constitution at all.
1: How do we hold unelected judges democratically accountable?
0: The way judicial power expands relative to the political branches is the more we come to think that the Constitution is just ordinary law, then of course you have to have lawyers and judges interpreting it. Our guest is Larry Kramer, dean of the Stanford Law School. It's a bizarre idea to say we're a democracy and here's the most important part of our law and it's so important that we can't let the people have anything to do with it. The judiciary in a democracy. Coming up
1: on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of 91.7 KALW, local and innovative public radio for San Francisco. Continuing conversations
0: that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus and in various bars and bistros in the Palo Alto area.
1: And from those lovely locales, we migrate, or stumble sometimes, to the air via the signals of this lovely station. And then from uh, the air to the internet via our blog, the blog.philosophytalk.org. And I've got the conversation started with a searching, questioning blog about our topic today, the judiciary and democracy. What's uh, what's the philosophical Uh, issues here, John?
0: Well, to keep it philosophical, Ken, we might think of it this way. Suppose you and I are the committee to form the social contract. Oh, we're in trouble. The original from-scratch charter that's going to set up a state. Now, what, what would lead us to want an independent judiciary as part of the social
1: contract? I'm taking for granted that we're talking a democracy here. I mean, you know, I love democracy, and I can't imagine wanting to live anything else in anything else. But taking that for granted, I... I think this is a little tricky. I think this is tricky. The judiciary, I see why we want that. We want somebody to settle cases in courts of law and to apply the law and interpret it fairly without an agenda. And there's a certain kind of independence you want there. But when we're talking about like judicial review, saying what the law is and enforcing that interpretation on the people, I'm not so sure why we would want, in a democracy where power is supposed to rest with the people, these unelected persons telling us... How are we going to live, in a way? Why why should we want that?
0: Okay. I mean, I'll go along with the democracy part, but that's not all there is to it. I mean, uh, uh, our social contract was was really influenced a lot by John Locke, and if you read his work on liberty, he's not all that—I mean, uh, uh, the second treatise uh, on government, he's not all that consumed with democracies. He's interested in protection of people from tyranny. The tyranny of a single person, which was probably what he mainly had in mind— but it uh, equally applies to the, to the majority. You have to be able to live your life without thinking that the whims of a single person or the majority are going to change the rules in the middle and drag you off to jail.
1: Right. And so you don't want the judiciary just to be answerable to the whims of the majority. That's what the Lockean thought, your thought is there. But wait a minute, though. You know, here's the problem. You know. You want to insulate the judiciary from politics. I think that's a good impulse. But its decisions have great political reach, right? And sometimes, and think about this, and when uh, the death penalty cases, uh, desegregation, uh, all this stuff that the courts have decided over the years have gone against the will of vast numbers of people. And they haven't just said, oh, well, we lose. They've wanted to seize the political process and take over and undo what the court did. And that caused great turmoil. So insulate them from politics, but then let them shake up politics and then not be answered. Uh, You think that's a good idea? I think in our
0: social contract, we're going to want to design a system so that we get, at least for our Supreme Court, some very wise individuals who are really dedicated to the rule of law and good at interpreting the law, but have one ear, at least part of the time to the political reality so that, so that so, so that we don't just have what you're
1: describing. That there. sounds like a pretty delicate balance. And to help to see if we've succeeding in striking that balance, a roving philosophical reporter Zoe Corneli went into the courtroom and she files this report.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, please rise and come to order. Court is now in session.
3: It's a typical Wednesday morning for San Mateo County Judge Craig Parsons.
1: Good morning.
3: Trial judges like Parsons hear cases at the county level, and in California, they're chosen by the voters, but appellate and state Supreme Court justices are appointed by the governor.
4: And there, uh, judges are called upon to decide constitutional questions where there isn't an obvious right or wrong answer.
3: Roger Warren is a scholar-in-residence at the Judicial Council of California.
4: And it's difficult for a voter uh, who's not legally trained, especially, to have a way of really evaluating whether the justice's interpretation of the law uh, is right or wrong.
3: But voters do get to decide whether to keep higher court judges when their term is over. That's called a retention election. So how did the United States end up with a system that mixes judicial elections and judicial appointments?
4: The original 13 states um, provided that all of their judges would be appointed because they thought that was the best way to establish the independence of the court system so that they would not be subject to the will of the people.
3: By the time of the Civil War, Warren says, new states were electing their judges.
4: And the original reason for that was that people had grown very distrustful of judges because they were appointed as part of political processes in the governor's offices and in the legislature, and the idea was to free judges up from from any political involvement by electing them. Then what happened is that the same political influences um, ended up dominating the election of judges also.
3: Voters can have a powerful influence on the judiciary. Back in 1986, the electorate changed the face of the California Supreme Court. Three justices, Rose Byrd, Cruz Reynoso, and Joseph Grodin, were up for retention. They were under pressure from voters to be stronger on the death penalty. Grodin says at the time he was deliberating on a murder case.
2: And I remember thinking to myself, well now, if I vote to affirm the death penalty in this case, people are going to say Grodin is only doing that because he wants to stay on the court. On the other hand... If I voted to reverse the death penalty, I would be acting contrary to what I thought was appropriate in the case.
3: Former Justice Grodin says he was acutely aware of public opinion.
2: I had to make a conscious effort to put that aside and not consider it, you know. I have to say that I don't know of any occasion when I was on the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeal uh, when I heard any judge suggest that a case should be decided in a particular way because of the popular reaction to the case. That does not mean that, that it wasn't on the mind of particular judges, but everybody understood that our obligation as judges required us so far as we were able to disregard such influences.
3: Bill Hing, a law professor at UC Davis, says that kind of pressure threatens the independence of the state's judiciary.
4: Placing judges on a ballot automatically makes it a political decision on the part of voters. What happens is that a voter cares about particular issues, such as the death penalty or abortion. Instead of, is this judge fair? Does the judge weigh both sides of the argument?
3: So, is it better to subject judges to the whims of the majority or the politics of elected officials? For Philosophy Talk, I'm Zoe Corneli.
1: You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.